First Peter chapter 1, we went into the introduction last week, just giving us, uh, tried to give a perspective of the book and just getting us ready and excited for this walk through the book of First Peter. And, and I hope that you'll take the time to read it and to, to try to mark in it and make some notes about it and, and try to memorize it and study it because I believe this, this intersects with every aspect of our life. I, I have a hard time coming across First Peter and not find something that would be relevant for every stage and every area of our life. Let's stand together and we'll give our attention to the reading of the first six verses. First Peter chapter 1 beginning verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an incorruptible, excuse me, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now we're going to look at actually verses 1 through 5 and focusing a little bit more on verses 1 through 4. And we're going to take verse number 6 through verse number 9 uh, next week and look at some significance of actual suffering and when we're in the suffering. But I want us to see this morning that as we've looked at the title of the series, this matter of encouragement through God's enabling. Encouragement comes through from the idea of hope. The Bible speaks of hope. He's already mentioned that. Hope as far as confident expectation. I can hope in my God because my God's alive. The other thing he mentions a lot in this book is grace. Grace is God's enabling. And so he wants to give us encouragement in any season of life through the enabling of God's grace. And so this morning he launches into this, Peter does, and I think he's laying out very clearly for us, I hope you'll get it, some certainties, some facts, some observations that will give us hope, the certainties that will actually give us hope. A lot of times the reason people get so down and despondent when something comes across their path that is less than delightful is because they've lost sight of the certainties. They've lost sight of the, the objectives. Before Peter, before Paul, before James, if you go through their writings, before they tell you what to do, they're always telling you what you are and what you have in Christ. And Peter is here doing the most, most basic element here in this opening chapter, telling us what is certain and true 
If you're going to hang your hat on something, you ought to hang it upon truth. Certainties that will give us hope. Or just looking at the foundations for some faithful living. Thank you. Please be seated. Keep in mind we're talking about and hearing from a man whose name was Peter. A fisherman, a disciple of John the Baptist when Jesus called him to be among his 12 disciples. Peter had a heart of ready obedience. He had a remarkable faith and he had a depth of spiritual insight that was beyond his contemporaries. Yet he was still extremely human. For instance, he proudly proclaimed his unwavering allegiance to Christ unto death. Yet soon after Jesus' arrest, because he didn't factor that into the equation, he denied to a servant girl even knowing the Lord Jesus. This cowardly act was devastating. It was humiliating to Peter. But now Christ was able to shape this newly humbled Peter into a courageous and compassionate leader of the early church. Peter, he performed miracles. Peter carried the gospel to the Gentiles. He wrote books of the Bible and he eventually died as a martyr in Rome. History and legend tells us that Peter felt so unworthy of Christ to be crucified like his Lord that he begged his executioner to crucify him upside down. Peter came a long way from his miserable night of failure to his triumphant martyrdom. Just as Jesus transformed Peter into using him to evangelize the world, the truth is Jesus wants to transform your life as well. Peter's life was forever changed after he learned to die to self and be made alive in Christ and be filled with the Spirit of God. In reality, yours will too. You know, believers today, just like in Peter's day and in Peter's life, we need to get some strong encouragement. But how? How do we get strong encouragement that we desperately need? How do we shore up and strengthen somebody who's hurting so much? How can a person be secure though suffering and experiencing maybe persecution and trials? Well, the only way, I think this is true, it's the only way one can really find security, one can find safety and genuine hope is knowing, knowing with absolute assurance that they belong to Jesus Christ and that they are under his watch care and love. I believe that's why Peter, he goes into these certainties to help us because he's writing this letter to people who were devastated because of persecution, whose lives were turned upside down. They're hurting, they're scared. And in order to give any hope and any encouragement, he's got to give them some things they have to know and they have to carry with them through every bit of truth and teaching and discipling and lessons and messages that they're going to hear. So this morning, I want us to try to take a stab at these four certainties that are mentioned here that every child of God needs to know. 
And let's see if we can learn these certainties. Now, it is my desire always to be brief, but I'd rather be a blessing and you get it than just being brief. And I look at, I can cut this off maybe someplace and pick it up later, but I want us to get the mindset that I believe that Peter is getting across. So let me point your attention to verse number two. We saw verse one last week, the introduction of Peter and to the group that he's writing to, modern day Turkey. And in verse number two, notice what he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. I feel like we could say amen there and go home. Yeah. But just as they did when they read the letter, there needs to be some preaching about it. But I want to tell you what I get out of verse number two is this. All those things I just said we're going to look at. Number one, you are specially loved. What is all verse two saying? You are specially loved. You are loved so much. That's what verse two is saying. Using big words, elect, foreknowledge, sprinkled, grace, mercy, All of that is telling us God loves you. He specially loves you. He says, notice verse 2, elect. That that means you are selected before the world. Here you see in verse 2, I hope you'll get this. I don't know if you write in your Bible. How many write in your Bible? Would you raise your hand? All right, good. I, I would make note of this. You see the Trinity at work here. He mentions God the Father. He mentions the Spirit, this is all verse 2, and Jesus Christ. Here you see the work of the Holy Trinity in your salvation. Again, if you've just come to church or you're religious, that's not the same as Bible salvation. But he says here that when it comes to our salvation, God the Father, he thought it. God the Holy Spirit wrought it. God the Son bought it. See, the Bible teaches you here that you're not an accident. You're not an afterthought. Elect is telling you that you were a beforethought with God. You're a child of God. Listen, he's the one who uses that terminology. You are a planned child of God. You are a wanted child of God. Elect before the foundation of the world. Elect simply means those who belong to God. If you're a child of God, you're one of the elect. You belong to him. It means a wonderful thing. It means that believers have the highest position in all the world. It means the position of being God's own holy and beloved child. That's what it means when it says you're elect. But see, if you're not saved, you're not one of his elect. You don't get saved if you're one of the elect. You're one of the elect because you got saved. And some of you, you've come to church, you've been in church, but you've yet come to Jesus Christ. Listen, teenager, it doesn't do you any, you're not going to heaven because you sit in the teen section. Listen, look to the person beside you and say, wake up. 
Both sides of him. All right? Good. And teenagers, turn around, tell the people behind you to wake up. All right, there you go. Hey, it's important that you come to Jesus Christ and you get your salvation settled. Someone says, well, you know, I, I don't want to cram it down somebody's throat. Well, they're going straight to hell. You can't cram salvation down their throat, but you can get it into their heart by helping them to see you don't go to hell because God didn't choose you. You go to hell because you didn't choose him. The elect simply means those who are his children. You're, you have the highest and the holiest position in all the earth being a child of God. What does that mean when it says we're specially loved? Let me walk through it. Verse number two, notice what it says. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That tells me, first of all, the Father plans it. Salvation was planned by the heavenly Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge of God is more than God simply knowing what will take place in the future. The word foreknowledge is our English word prognosis. A doctor examines you and he gives you a prognosis. The word literally means to know before. He says, in other words, the doctor says, if you don't quit eating so much, you're going to get as big as an elephant. Well, that's a prognosis. That's knowledge beforehand. That, that is, the Bible talks about the foreknowledge of God that God knows beforehand. There's nothing that God does not know. People race through their theological motors about the words foreknowledge and election. Again, I, I, I think we can see it simply. The elect are the whosoever wills. Whosoever wills are the ones who can come to Jesus. Who are the whosoever wills? Anybody. But the elect are the whosoever wills that said yes to Jesus. The elect, and that's it. That, that's the simplicity of it. The, the elect are the whosoever wills. If you want to be saved, come on. And thank God the Bible says whosoever will. But your coming, it never surprises God. He never looks and says, oh, I, I wasn't talking about you. No, he said, whosoever will. He knew about it. His foreknowledge knew about it before it took place, before he, he flung the planets into space. You say, well, I don't understand all that. Well, good, that makes two of us. But I know what he says. The foreknowledge of God means that God sees everything in the present time. In other words, nothing comes as a surprise to God. In his foreknowledge, God knew you. God knew how you would respond when presented with the gospel and the claims of Jesus Christ. And God said, I'll take you before the world ever begun. That makes you a very special person. That makes you a very special creature walking around on this world. That's why this world can't really be your home. You were selected before this world was ever thought of. You know, you take a young lady on her wedding day. That's a special day. It should be. You take the drama out of it, it's a real special day. So I feel like I can help a lot of the brides and grooms if they would get help and get the drama out of it. It's supposed to be a special day. You see this, this bride all made up. And I've, I've never seen an ugly bride. 
I've seen one or two barely made it, but I've never really seen. And, and, it's, and it's because they're all dressed up and they've got their makeup exactly where it's supposed to be and they're glowing and beautiful and, and, and all of that. Why, why is she that way? Well, she knows that of all the girls in the world, he chose her and she feels special to him. There's no room for a child of God to ever feel insignificant, unimportant, or hopeless because if you're saved and if you have come to Jesus as your Savior, God has said to you, you are special to me that before you were ever born, I set my love upon you and I determined that when you said yes to Jesus, you would be mine. That means you can't do anything bad enough to be saved to not be saved rather, and you can't do anything good enough to be saved. That doesn't do away with human responsibility at all. It doesn't mean we don't have any say in the matter, for the Bible also says whosoever will may come. And anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. Every child of God needs to know that salvation was planned by God the Father. It's not your idea. It's not mine. We are elect of God according to the foreknowledge of God. But not only do we see that the Father plans it, but notice verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice through sanctification of the, what's the next word? Number two, the Spirit performs it. It's the Spirit of God who does the performing work. It says elect through sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is that big word. It just simply means you were set apart by the Holy Spirit. He set us aside for Himself. We're utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit for our salvation. I'm utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit after I get saved for service. For notice it says in verse 2, unto obedience. Every pastor, every preacher, every Christian needs to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit unto obedience. So we're saved by faith to serve by faith. We see that the Father plans it. It's the Holy Spirit that performs it. Notice in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of, what's the next two words? Our salvation planned by the Father, performed by the Spirit, but purchased by the Savior. Purchased by the Savior. I want to tell you, this, this is where it really got good for me. Not that the other part wasn't good, but you, you, get, you, you hunker down on this a little bit. And it's like taking that candy cane, boy, this will just... Lick the red right off your candy cane and uh, you get a hold of this. It says he speaks of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. And what Peter's doing is he's going back and, and these people 2,000 years ago knew what he was referencing. And so we too must know what he's referencing because he's given us a Bible that speaks of it. But he goes back into the Old Testament and he uses symbolism when he talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ because none of us literally have the blood of Jesus sprinkled on us. So he's talking about something that is figurative, but something that is equally as real and powerful 
as though the blood, the physical blood of Jesus was placed upon us. Now, three times, get this, three times in the Old Testament, you will find the blood was sprinkled. The first one, you go back to Leviticus 14. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to try to to get through this pretty fast here. But I don't want to do it any injustice. The first time you find the sprinkling of blood, it was for cleansing. For cleansing. In Leviticus 14, you find the, the, the mentioning of a leper. Leprosy in the Bible was very serious because there was no cure. The only way a person could be cured from leprosy had to be a miracle of God. Now, no doctors, no medicine could ever cure leprosy. Only God could do that. It had to be miraculously cleansed. And when the leper was cleansed and healed, there had to be a ceremony. He had to go through a ceremonial cleansing of what took place on his body. And so what they would do is this. This leper were to offer two doves. And they take two precious innocent doves. And that priest would take a basin of running water. And the priest would take one of those turtle doves and would wring its neck and kill it. And put it in that basin of running water and the blood would be shed there in that pure running water would be intermingled with blood. And then the priest would take the other dove that's alive and he would dip that living dove into that bloody water and then he would release it. And the blood would be dripping from the wings of that other dove as he would fly higher and higher and higher, and he'd fly away singing, there's power in the blood. Released, he's set free. This was a symbol in the Old Testament to picture what was happening to us when we got saved. But what about the leper? Well, the high priest, after he had killed the one dove and put its blood into that water and took the living dove and dipped it into that bloodied water and released the dove, he would take that bowl, that basin of blood and water, and he would take it and he would sprinkle that onto the leper as a picture of his cleansing. I don't ever want to get over the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, Peter says, your salvation was purchased by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. A second time we find the blood of Jesus sprinkled in the Old Testament. It has to do not only with cleansing, but also with consecration. When a man of God in the Old Testament would be a priest set aside to be ordained, a sacrifice would be made and half the blood would be poured on the altar And then the other half of the blood would be taken and put on the priest, on Aaron and his sons. It's for consecration. Let me ask you, have you ever seen a Baptist priest? If you're saved, you are. The Bible teaches we're a kingdom of priests. And so if this sprinkling of blood was for cleansing, 
We also need it for consecration to the one who loved us and the one who saved us. There's a third time you find the sprinkling of blood mentioned, and it's for a covenant. A covenant. You see, when God made a covenant with his people, Moses read the terms of that covenant. And then an ox was killed and his blood was sprinkled on the altar and the people to seal the covenant. Listen, it's a holy thing. It's a lifetime thing. That's why we say salvation is not the end. It's the beginning. People know just enough about God and their salvation to be miserably unhappy. Why? Because they took the cleansing, but they've forsaken the consecration and they've yet to realize the covenant. Why do you think the Lord Jesus, who, who invented marriage, God created marriage, and he refers to the Christian life, our union with him, to be similar to that union with a man and woman. And so often our society has treated marriage like it's a contract when God designed it to be a covenant. Where did he get that from? The same kind of covenant he's made with his people and his people are to have with him. So all of this simply says to me, the Father planned it, the Spirit of God performs it, Jesus Christ purchased it with his own blood for cleansing, for consecration, for the seal of a covenant of his love for us. It tells us that we are specially loved people. I want you to see a second thing. Notice what he says in verse number one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers Scattered. Scattered. He's writing to people. They're scattered on the outside and they're struggling with being scattered maybe on the inside. No matter where you are, no matter what you're walking through, no matter what you're facing, I think Peter's trying to let them know this. Number one, you're specially loved. Number two, you're strategically located. You're strategically located. He says scattered, scattered as strangers. This may seem haphazard. I'm, I've been in an accident. I, I, I'm facing this severe trial. But this word scattered is the idea in the Greek as sown, like you're sowing seed. We're scattered as strangers, they really were strangers in many people's eyes. They're vagabonds, at least here upon this earth. It was open season. Remember we mentioned last week for Christians when Peter wrote this? Because remember, year was 79, July 16th. There was a fire in Rome and, and Nero um, blamed the Christians. He took some things and he accused the Christians falsely of, of being cannibalistic, of doing other things and causing there to be a, a, a stirring and, and an uprising against God's people. And so many of God's people, they suffered persecution. God's people during this time of Peter's writing had been taken and killed and used as human torches for Nero as they burned to light the streets. 
Yeah, in the world's eyes, they, they look like strangers, scattered. But Peter says, you've never been more loved by anybody than you are by God. You're strategically located. You're scattered. You're scattered as seed. But he also mentions this idea in verse number 2, when he mentions sanctification, it's just a, another idea. You're, you're scattered as saints. You, you belong to Him. In other words, we're, we're not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. We're citizens of, of heaven as ambassadors here on earth. Listen, if you don't get that, you're going to be frustrated if you're a child of God in trying to make this world your home. You will always be frustrated when Man said, Lord, if I'm building a nest, put a thorn in it. Well, he does. He puts thorns. He, he lets us know this is not where you're to anchor down. This is not it. I want you to see a third thought. He says in verse number three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This tells me, number three, that I'm eternally secure. Eternal security. Now this is a wonderful thing. It's a most wonderful thing. If we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, He's our Savior. The God, uh, God the Father, He plans it. The Spirit of God, He performs it. Jesus Christ, He purchases it. And all of this is telling us that we have a security in our salvation that is e eternal. It's eternal security. And see, God's not off in outer space someplace far removed from us. As a little God, uninterested in our concern. No, God is near at hand. He's all about us. He's living within the spiritual world and dimension. He's longing to relate with you and to be involved in the, every aspect of your life. He's not a genie that is to give you your wishes. He is our God who's given us everything we could possibly need. And Peter's going to go into that in greater detail to live godly and righteously and soberly in this present world. But he's He's wanting us to join to him so that we can find out who's the giver of life, who has given us the meaning of life, the purpose of life, and to enable us to experience life. Oh, he's given us this matter of eternal security. You know why I believe in eternal security? You've got to have eternal security if you're going to be an effective servant. And one of the outside of all the Bible reasons, God wants us to serve him. But how can you be an effective servant if you're not secure? You know, how many of you have ever been told by one of your siblings? You are not really part of the family. You know, they, they played a trick on you. They, they tried to mess with your mind. You know, for a moment, that little kid can can have some strange thoughts running through his head. Well, how many times do you think the devil wants to convince us that what we have is not really secure? When you know your destiny is settled, you can concentrate on your present. 
You've got to have a sense of security. Now, our security is the nature of our salvation. That's verse 3. Our security is the nature of our salvation. Our salvation is rooted in abundant mercy. Not a little bit of mercy, according to verse 3. Abundant mercy. That which is the gift of mercy can never be taken away for the lack of merit. In other words, if you don't do enough to earn it, you can't lose it because it wasn't found in whether you had enough or whether you did enough. It's found, your salvation and mine is found in the mercy of Almighty God. If you earned it, you didn't need His mercy. If you didn't need His mercy, you didn't need Him. It's rooted in abundant mercy. We keep our salvation the same way we got it. How? By the mercy of Almighty God. How am I kept saved? By the mercy of God. Some people say, well, I sure hope I'm living right when I die, so I'll go to heaven. You ever heard that one? Listen, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes I've ever lived to get me to heaven. And I've got some real bad ones also, but I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes of my life to get me there. And if the only thing that keeps you from sinning is the fear of going to hell, you need to get saved. And I'm serious about that because you've never been saved if you're living a mindset that I've not done too bad or I'm doing the best I can. Somebody said, well, I can, you know, if I believe in eternal security, I'll just get saved and then I'll sin all I want to. And I don't think that that's what God teaches. No, it's not what he teaches. He does teach, however, when you get saved, you can't lose it. He does teach that when you get saved, you can still sin. But one thing that does change when a real when a person really gets saved is that when they sin as a saved person, they'll never win. You can sin, but you will not win. Because God's promise, you belong to Him, you're His child, and He always spanks His children. He says, if I don't spank you, Hebrews 12, you're a bastard. You don't belong, you belong to the devil. You will be dealt with as the devil's child at the great white throne judgment when you're cast into the lake of fire along with the devil and his cohorts. But if you belong to God, you can sin. You just won't win. And another thing he teaches is that he messes with your want to. You're still tempted by sin. Adam and Eve were. They were perfect people. But he certainly messed with their want to. They didn't want what they got after they got it. See, there are such things as unsolved mysteries. I don't know if that still comes on TV, but there used to be a show called Unsolved Mysteries. And I believe that there are some things that will never be brought out in the life of some people until they stand before God right before they're cast into hell. But I believe this about the child of God. There's no sin that you and I can commit, but what the Father sees and God will be involved in correcting us so that we can be effective disciples and children of His. In other words, your sins and mine will not be left unsolved. God will be a perfect parent in your life and mine. Oh, I'm telling you, this matter of eternal security, however, 
It's rooted in abundant mercy. The Bible says that um, it, it, it has been begotten. He uses the word begotten. And that's an aorist tense verb. I know that just makes some of you tingle when I tell you some of those, that great Greek terminology. It's an aorist tense. What aorist means is that it was begotten once and for all. It was done once and for all, and it has ongoing results. If something happened in the past, but it has ongoing results into the future. Listen, it means that it's once and for all. That means you get saved once and for all. <clears throat> uh, well, well what, about, what about when we really blow it? It means once and for all. <clears throat> Let me say it this way. Jesus died once and for all. If a person ever has to get saved again, Jesus would have to die again. He ain't going to do it. He did a good job the first time he died, was buried and resurrected, and he did a great job when a person comes to him and saves their soul in abundant mercy. See, you're not born again and again and again and again. I've thought many times, I'd give anybody $100 right now. I have to borrow it from Brother Autry, but I'd give it to you. If anybody could stand up and tell me any place in the Bible where anybody, anybody got saved more than once. You're not going to find it. But there are churches littered everywhere who believe and preach that. I'm going to tell you, even if I believe that you could lose your salvation, I think I'd be quiet about it. But we ought to be shouting about the fact we can't lose it because it's not in us, it's in Him. That means you can live any way you want to live. Sure, but you're not going to get rewards based upon any way you live. You get rewards based upon being faithful, but you get salvation only because He's faithful. Listen, our salvation, this eternal security, let me give you a couple thoughts under that. This, it's a living hope. It's rooted in the mercy of God. I've already said that. You've ignored him, neglected him, failed him, rebelled him, rejected him. You've cursed him. You've disobeyed him, sinned against him, disbelieved him. You've turned away from him. And the list could go on and on and on and on. But the point is clearly seen. Our only hope, our only hope, excuse me, <clears throat> is the mercy of Almighty God. And, uh, and so no, the second thing about this matter of eternal security is not only is it rooted in the mercy of God, but it results in the new birth. A result, the living hope comes by the new birth of Jesus Christ. This begotten again, born again. The third thought is, he says here in verse number three, and the end of, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It, it comes because Jesus is not in the tomb. He came out of the tomb. Hebrews 7, 25, wherefore he's able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. See, if Jesus ever dies again, then you can worry about your salvation. If Jesus ever dies again, then you can go around depressed. But we're told that he ever liveth to make intercession for those that he specially loves. I'm telling you, 
That's what keeps me going and tracking on for Jesus. I know that I'm eternally secure. And if you're saved, so are you. You say, I don't feel it. So? What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. Nothing. Your feelings have nothing to do with the facts of what he says. I'm going to give you a last thought here. Number four. Another certainty that Peter's trying to lay out, if you're ever going to get through suffering successfully, the fourth certainty is you are incredibly rich. Notice verse 4 and 5. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through salvation, uh, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember, we're selected before the world. We're scattered throughout this world. We're secure while in the world. But he's telling us here that being incredibly rich, what he's telling us is you, if you tap into Jesus Christ and you're bent on experiencing him, you can find satisfaction without this world. So I'd rather have satisfaction by the world. The world passes away. First right. John chapter 2. Right. See, he's saying you're incredibly rich. I've got illustrations here to get across the point in many different ways, using many different scenarios. I thought this, these would be great illustrations to really give your brain a break and, and, and be able to, 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 to draw you in. I'm going to skip the illustrations. I want to get to the Bible significance of this. And that is, we're rich because Christ is our inheritance. Christ is our inheritance. Christ is our inheritance. That's the only reason why we're rich. I hope that doesn't let the air out of your balloon. The inheritance is Christ. That's why when a person says, I know I'm saved, but you know, going to church, I go to church every now and then, like I go to grandma's house. And you know, this matter of, you know, we don't really have devotions and we don't really spend time with God. But you know, I'm going to heaven. That's all that matters. Really? That's all that, that's all that matters? And we're talking about different matters then. Because there's one thing that matters, and that is that you are on your way to heaven, but it's a whole nother thing that matters. And that is, what are you doing now that you're going to heaven? And if you don't get down this matter of experiencing God, you're not going to exercise the permission that God gives you to draw off of the inheritance. Now, Ezekiel 44, verse 28. I want you to listen to this Old Testament verse. God says, and it shall be unto them for an inheritance. Now, he's talking to the Levites here. And God says this, it shall be unto them for an inheritance. And this is what I, I love this. And my mind went to this whenever reading Peter. Now listen to the next phrase. God says, and it shall be unto them, Ezekiel 44, 28, for an inheritance. Now listen to what God says. I am their inheritance. And ye shall give them no possession in Israel. I am. Am their possession. Now I wonder how many of God's people today, if God was saying that, would say, I, I think I'd rather take the possessions. I'd rather have the land. God is saying to these Levites, don't give them any land. God says, 
I'm going to give them myself. I'm their possession. We know that God possesses us, but God says, I'm giving myself to you to possess. That's your inheritance. You can't be intimidated when you understand God is my inheritance. The devil says, if you don't serve me, I'm going to take everything away from you. And Job says, but you didn't give me everything. I have God. I've lost everything humanly, but I have everything universally found in God. He's my inheritance. What is the devil going to do with a man like that? You see, we have nothing. I love 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's like a, a lot of God's people in here. What about your inheritance? By the way, he's saying, you're a plutocrat. You're, you're, you're rich. You, you, you have an incredible inheritance. I thought about going, part of the illustration, I was going to go through the list of the, 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 the wealthiest people in America and go down through there. And then I was going to pick, uh, you know, just some men in here. Take Brian Foote, Ed Baker, Ben McIntyre, and line them up against the, uh, uh, the Shaquille O'Neal and the Michael Jordan and the Warren Buffett and the, the Bill Gates. And, 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 and because of what God the Holy Spirit is saying to us, I can tell you with with dogmatism you're richer than all of those men that's what God is saying you are because what they have in their portfolio will never get them past the first breath that has taken in eternity without God but everything you have in Christ it's going to take you not just into eternity, but what Peter's getting at is it's going to take you into every troubled sea, every difficult moment, into the valley of the shadow of death. There is no place that you can go without the inheritance of God with you. Let me run through the inheritance real quick. It tells us in verse number 3, Verse number four, to an inheritance, verse four, that is incorruptible. That means it's faultless. It means it cannot perish. It does not age, deteriorate, or die. It doesn't have an expiration date. I say, thank God, no expiration date. I don't have to open it and smell it to see if it's good before I drink it. I want to point out, Matthew Henry says this, everything on earth changes from better to worse but not our inheritance. It is perfect. It's incorruptible. Matthew Henry says it never changes. It'll never cease to be the most perfect inheritance and gift imaginable. Not only is it um, incorruptible, faultless, but number two, it is undefiled, meaning it's flawless. It means it cannot be polluted. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be dirty. It cannot be infected. It means... Your inheritance will be without any flaw or defect. There will never be any tears over what happens to oneself, over the damage or loss of some possession, because you'll never lose this. Not the inheritance that God gives. But not only that, but we see that it is in, uh, incorruptible, undefiled, and it fadeth not away. It's 
fadeless. It means it'll last forever. That's the splendor and beauty of it all. It lasts forever. Nothing, not even our energy and bodies will wear out or waste our inheritance. You know what this tells me too? That means lawyers cannot get to it. Court fees will not interrupt it. There's no taxes, inflation, inheritance tax, none of this. It's fadeless. It says this, it's it's reserved in heaven for you. The word reserved means it's the idea it's protected. It It is protected by God. It's waiting for us. It's held there by God. And so I want you, Peter wants you, God wants you, dear child of God, to know you're incredibly rich as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever get over these certainties. You're specially loved. Your salvation was planned by the Father. It's performed by the Holy Spirit. It's purchased by the Son. That blood of Jesus Christ. You're strategically located. You're not where you are by accident. Well, what if I made wrong decisions to get to where I am? You have a loving heavenly Father. There is a shortcut back to the narrow way of blessing, and that is repent. Agree with God. God is the God because of the power of the blood of Jesus, the God of a second, third, a thousand chances. Number three, you're eternally secure. Number four, you're incredibly rich. Let's not get over it. Let's stand together, please.